Survival of the Fittest. Everyone knows that as the core fact of Darwinism, right? That for something or someone to make it, it has to be the strongest, the toughest. That idea gave us the X-Men comics, which I think are cool. But it's also led to some pretty selfish and cutthroat behavior out of this thinking that individuals need to strive at all costs to succeed, even if it comes at the expense of other people. But a closer look tells us we might be doing Charles Darwin dirty. It turns out our friend Charlie was really referring to fitness in the genetic and biological sense. That is, the genes that can stick it out in their environment are those passed on to the next generation. Meaning survival of the fittest isn't actually about a person's individual strength at all. In fact, it has nothing to do with individuals. It's really about a species' ability to adapt to their immediate local environment. So when it comes to climate change, that's a perspective shift that, as a species, we basically should have taken on yesterday. In 2015, 195 countries agreed to work together to limit our man-made emissions. But according to the latest report from the United Nations, we're currently on track to miss our goal number by more than double. So, uh, big yikes. What's worse is that even as we work to pull back on our carbon emissions, we've pretty much already guaranteed that there are going to be disasters coming for us. And our cities are going to need to adapt if we're going to survive. That's just Darwinism, after all. In this episode, we're looking at the concept of climate resilience in cities. That is, how well positioned are our cities to anticipate, prepare for, and respond to these looming climate catastrophes? For example, is Canada ready for waves of climate migrants from the south? How do politics and modern living help or harm efforts to make cities climate resilient? And can cities adapt to avoid damage in the future while simultaneously dealing with the damage that is now for sure coming our way? I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to City Space. Our first guest is Thaddeus Palowski, an urban designer, professor, and managing director at the Center for Resilient Cities and Landscapes at Columbia University's School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy slammed the eastern seaboard from the Caribbean to Canada, killing 233 people and causing billions of dollars worth of damage. Thaddeus was on the ground, helping New York City rebuild and he joined us to discuss what that experience taught him about effective climate solutions for cities. Here's our conversation. So the climate change effects we're seeing today are largely due to decisions we made about a decade or more ago, right? But we're still making mistakes now that we're going to have to basically recover from and adjust for moving ahead. So what can promoting resilience do, given that we already have a lot of guaranteed damage done? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think like in some ways after disaster is a moment where silos tend to naturally break down because there's a destabilizing event and then people come together and coalesce to try to find a path forward. And so after Hurricane Sandy in New York City, I was working in New York City government, there was a big effort 
to rebuild in different ways. And I think the disasters hold so many lessons. One of the lessons from Hurricane Sandy was that it's like really hard to change things in the wake of disaster. Even though the silos break down, there's also like a real snapback to the status quo. But it did create enough space for some really innovative things to happen. Like the co-director of our center at Columbia, Kate Orff, she's a landscape architect and her firm, Scape, was able to rethink the way that coastal protection happens in New York City. After Hurricane Sandy, Kate and her colleagues said, couldn't we use this opportunity of shoreline defense to improve the waters of New York Harbor? And so they designed an artificial oyster reef that not only like reduces wave action, but also protects the community beyond from storm surges like they experienced in Hurricane Sandy. And it grows like oysters, which help to clean the water. And it's a great opportunity for citizen science and for the community to get involved in a really participatory way in coastal resilience, which I think that's a big way that infrastructure has failed us in the past is that infrastructure is just something that happens to people. So we need to really rethink infrastructure as being not just for people, but like with people and about people and really with the environment, with our natural systems like oyster reefs or wetlands or forests. Like forests are the 21st century infrastructure that we need to be investing in to build adaptive climate resilient cities. So let's talk about Hurricane Sandy. So you were right there in 2012 in the process, both leading up to it and afterward. Let's talk a bit about what happened as it relates to adaptation and mitigation that followed, but also recovery that followed. Yeah, I mean, disasters are really traumatic, too. I mean, both for obviously the survivors of the disaster like Hurricane Sandy, but in some ways for this institutional stability. There was a set of objectives that were sort of guiding Mayor Bloomberg's policy about growth and about economic development, like reasserting New York as a global center of commerce. So like an event like Hurricane Sandy, in many ways, reset some of those priorities. Those were like the large scale objectives of that mayoral administration. We don't want any more Hurricane Sandys or crisis events, but we're not going to avoid them with the tools that we're using right now. What I experienced personally during Hurricane Sandy was I was working on climate change adaptation in the back room at city planning and no one was paying much attention. Like, you know, I remember presenting to the city planning commission a plan for post-disaster housing a year before Hurricane Sandy. And the response was like, well, that's nice, but could that really happen in New York City? And I was like, yes, it's going to happen. Absolutely, it's going to happen. But, you know, it was just me saying that. So, yeah, there was plenty of evidence on my side, but no one cared. And that really changed after Sandy. And I think it's only increasing since then. So you're telling me you were Bill Paxton in Twister. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Just as frantic, but maybe not as well acting. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So trauma is a really interesting way to put that. Because when I think about trauma, I think about this also in the context of, you know, people doing therapy, but also people experience the pandemic is a lot of time when you experience trauma there is a sort of inherent desire, a human desire as a result to want to go back to what it was before, right? Trauma is such a divergence from the norm that there was something essentially human about wanting to actually let's let's go back to when things were good, right? How much of that did you see as far as not just the institutions, but the individuals populating it, right? Like how much did the politicians sort of themselves experiencing trauma inform the way that the city was trying to say, Things were really bad. Let's get it back as quickly as possible to the status quo. 
Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point that you make. And one thing was that a lot of people in the moment of crisis really like stick to their guns, you know, like stick to their foundational principles. But as a reaction to the trauma, I think that in many ways, what I saw after Sandy was like emerging leadership at a grassroots level that I thought was really inspiring. And so I feel like some people were able to translate the trauma into like really concrete action and advocacy on behalf of their communities. And because there was no other choice, right? Somebody had to step up and be like, you know what, this, what's been going on here, not just Sandy, but what was going on here before with environmental racism, with the government's lack of investment in our preparedness and our resilience, these things need to be addressed. And I guess that's been sort of, especially like in urban planning circles, like the big lesson from all of these disasters, which is, and I think it goes back to the example I used with the oyster reefs, that community needs to be centered in this process. And that's not just some platitude. Really, we should take half the money that goes into disaster recovery and just give it to community-based organizations to staff up and run these recovery programs. You know, when folks think and sort of hear about, you know, climate resilience innovations, I think a lot of the time the stuff that gets the buzz is the stuff that's maybe a little pie in the sky, a little like almost sci-fi in their approach. You know, I'm thinking here about Dubai talking about like an air-conditioned bubbled city or in Saudi Arabia, there's a planned city that promises to be powered completely by renewable energy. But that's not really what resilience is, right? No, no, that's not it. (laughs) That technology, you know, got us into this whole mess. There's some technology that like we absolutely need and like really we need innovation. in. For instance, I've just come around to the realization through reading and talking to experts that there's going to be too much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere that for us to completely absorb forests and natural means. So like we do need some direct carbon capture technology in order to come down to our climate goals. And we need improvements in the efficiency of our building systems and our building envelopes and our transportation systems. Absolutely. But these pie in the sky, like silver bullet solutions through technology, I mean, really, like what has the digital age really brought us in terms of societal benefit? Like e commerce is actually a huge threat to our cities right now. It's like clogging all of our roadways with trucks and filling up our frontline neighborhoods with last mile warehouses. So I'm a little skeptical about the role of the techno-utopianist future in solving the climate crisis. I think some oil company popping up an ad in your Instagram saying, we're doing this innovative new carbon capture technology or whatever, that's old and boring. And we've seen that greenwashing before. And I feel like young people are just like, yeah, whatever that's not going to work. And we need to invest in what we know in our like system of values to be the way forward, which is to actually repair our relationship with the natural systems on which we depend. Thanks to Thaddeus Palowski for joining us. After the break, we'll chat with the former chief resilience officer for the city of Toronto. More after this. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For a hundred years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. 
Elliot Capel is the national climate change leader and partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers Canada. He's also the former chief resilience officer for the city of Toronto, and he's written for, well, me at the Globe and Mail's opinion section. He worked on the front lines of city resilience to do what needed to be done yesterday, so here's some good news. He's still got hope for tomorrow. Here's our conversation. So the first piece we worked together on was in the Globe's opinion section almost three years ago now. So I'll just remind you that it was about Jakarta and how Indonesia is fully moving its capital because it is sinking. And at the time, you argued that cities are going to need to really confront this problem because historically cities are built on water and that building a full new city while leaving the other one behind, that's just not the answer. So is your sense now, you know, a few years later, that cities are doing better in those intervening years? I think cities are doing better. It's easy at any one point in time, such as now, to look around the world and say that there is inaction on climate change. And I understand the Greta Thunberg perspective that, you know, the sky is falling because to a degree it is, and that the action that we're taking is wholly inadequate because it is. But when you look at how far we've come over the last few years, we have cities like Miami, for example, which I would say, you know, five, 10 years ago, maybe would not have even formally acknowledged that there's a problem. Not only has a resilience strategy and a flood protection strategy, also has a chief heat officer, heat being another one of the major hazards that's facing cities. Athens has a chief heat officer as well. So you see, uh, I would say, a groundswell of action from cities around the world. Now, it is not sufficient. You know, Miami is a very good example. They released their flooding plan, I think, about a year ago now. And there's quite a lot of uh, back and forth consternation from the market as to whether they were doing enough. But um, I think it's fair to say cities are not doing enough, but we're doing much more, much more today than we were three, four years ago. Speaking of groundswell, what you wrote in that piece was that you worried about how 800 million people lived in 570 coastal cities threatened by sea level rise specifically. And that's according to C40. So if cities follow Jakarta's example in pulling back, one of the worries you had was that this would exacerbate inequality. Can you explain how that's the case? Yeah, and this idea of climate migration and climate refugees is one that has been percolating and was updated in the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, AR6, which was released earlier this year to some fanfare. And what they showed in their analysis was that we are less worried about people saying, okay, I need to leave the United States for Canada, or I need to leave Turkey for Greece because of climate change, but that there will be internal migration. So I'm going to leave New Orleans and I'm going to move to Houston. I'm going to leave Istanbul and I'm going to move to Ankara or whatever the case may be. And it's that internal displacement of people, which could be a very significant uh, result or impact of climate change. And when you look at coastal cities, I mean, there just isn't the infrastructure, the housing, economic opportunities around the world to pick up and move hundreds of millions of people, even 30, 40, 50 kilometers inland. Yeah. And when you talk about coastal cities, I mean, that's a lot of cities, right? I mean, a lot of cities were built intentionally to take advantage of being near water. And that's kind of an issue now that climate change is affecting the floodplain. Absolutely. I mean, the only major city that I can think of off the top of my head that's not built on water would be Madrid. And then there are some cities like Toronto, for example, you know, we're on a lake, not an ocean. And so sea level rise is not really technically an issue for us. But still in Toronto, we see pluvial flooding, which is the flooding that comes from too much rain or fluvial flooding, the flooding from rivers, for example, very much impacting us. And as we saw in 2017, 2018, and we'll see in the future, high lake effect impacting Toronto. So different from sea level rise, but still cities are built on water. Too much water in the wrong place at the wrong time is a major hazard of climate change. Yeah. And speaking of specifically, again, the sea level question, you know, are there Canadian specific reasons about why our cities need to be thinking about resilience in particular around floodplains? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the two best examples are Nova Scotia and British Columbia. I mean, very sadly, British Columbia experienced the largest natural disaster in Canadian history. And yet it would probably just be a warning shot by comparison of what's to come when you think about the potential impact of sea level rise on Victoria, Vancouver, and the rest of the coast there. You look over across Nova Scotia and other parts of the Maritimes, but I know Nova Scotia the best. And I think something like 85% of the population was within 20 kilometers of the coast. When that coastline changes, it's going to impact almost the entire province. What have the lessons learned been so far? We've seen situations in BC, you know, with fires in BC and fires and flooding in Alberta, as you've already said, flooding in the Maritimes. You know, what have we learned as far as a Canadian approach to dealing with the effects of climate change in a resilience framework? Well, let me think about two separate things. The first is what we're learning about the impacts. The impacts seem to be greater and sooner than we expected. That's the first point. And I think when you look at disasters like what happened in Lytton, BC, for example, in the Pacific heat dome last year, I mean, the impacts are apocalyptic, right? So much greater and so much sooner than we had expected for that degree of climate change. Related, what we see in our impacts in places that we didn't expect before. So people in Toronto, which is a relatively low exposure city to something like forest fires, we saw haze and smoke in the sky from forest fires in Northern Ontario. So again, these are impacts that are sort of I don't use the term loosely, but I've used it a few times, apocalyptic, right, that we wouldn't have expected. On the other side, what we're learning about resilience, and I think this is something that is global, not just Canadian, is the interconnectedness between, say, the environmental or infrastructure that we need to build and the social or the community bonds. That We see that places with stronger social capital do better in acute events, and we see that interconnection between the people who are, say, at greatest risk because they are exposed, like they're living in areas of greatest risk, but also greatest vulnerability, marginalized groups, lowest income groups, and so on. And I think what we're seeing in practice is that we cannot separate climate resilience from social resilience. In reality, these things are bound together. More after this. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, 100 years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. Well, I just want to talk about infrastructure, how it's been designed to this point, and what a rethink of infrastructure looks like if we're building in a resilience-based framework. If there's this idea that infrastructure has to survive for 100 years, does that look different? Does that sort of core tenet look different moving ahead? And when we think about resilience, resilience is a concept that comes from nature. And fundamental to the idea of resilience is the ability to adapt and to change. This is a break from the way that we thought about infrastructure. When you say sustainability, sustainability fundamentally means you sustain, you stay the same. So sustainable infrastructure, which is our previous sort of way of thinking about it, building things that will last. Resilient infrastructure is about building things that will change. And conceptually, that's different. Now, if I take that from that strategic big picture thinking and I bring it down a level to a couple of specific examples, if you're thinking about a one in 100 year flood, the numbers around that, right? How much water we need to manage for one in 100 year flood changes. 
but also thinking about more flexible ways of implementing. And frankly, if you think about the procurement of a subway line or anything a municipality does, flexibility is not really (laughs) in the dialect. And so that's a change. A related one that we're seeing a lot in Canada that the Canadian government is pushing a lot, and I think with some value, are nature-based solutions. So not just thinking of infrastructure as something which is concrete and gray, but a mix of the natural environment and the built environment. We see a really good example of this in the Portland's flood protection scheme in Toronto, that waterfront Toronto-led initiative, also on the Toronto Island. Sorry, these are Toronto-specific examples, but they're just top of mind for me. On the Toronto Island in a place called Gibraltar Point, which suffered a lot in the flooding in 2017, 2018. We're seeing innovative use of both hard infrastructure, gray infrastructure, and green or natural infrastructure. And that infrastructure tends to have other benefits. So it, first of all, it takes carbon out of the air because there's more greenery there, tends to provide a healthier environment for people to live in, and people just enjoy it more. It's better to have a park than a seawall, for example. And then the third thing I talked about standards and codes and green and gray infrastructure, but we're seeing also a different approach to thinking about equity within infrastructure. Fundamentally, as I said a few moments ago, you just cannot separate climate resilience and social resilience. The overlap is fundamental. And so thinking about equity in terms of who is served by infrastructure is another important aspect of building the resilient infrastructure that we need to protect ourselves from climate change. And so climate resilience sort of sounds like maybe for some this like newfangled idea. You know, after all, you were Toronto's first chief resilience officer, and that was only in 2017, right? But it's not. It's pulling in all these things that have already existed and moving ahead in a practicable model, right? I think globally, we see a lot of places where the impacts of climate change were felt in, let's say, a a more near-term or different way than in Canada. So in Holland, for example, which is unquestionably one of the world's leaders in climate resilience, the water boards were the first form of government right? The first form of government was fundamentally about managing water because of the geographic nature of the Netherlands. So that concept has been built in through all of their thinking around governance and infrastructure. In places that I worked earlier in my career, like in Nepal and the Philippines and Southern Africa, they were feeling the impacts of climate change and the need for climate change adaptation perhaps sooner than Canada. Canada, we're probably behind, if we have to be frank. And I think that most people who work on resilience would either admit that or maybe scream that from the rooftops. We are certainly behind. We need to catch up. Some of it, cynically, you could say is old wine and new bottles. It's stuff that we've been doing, and we just need to think about it a little differently on a different scale. And some of it is net new. Are there specific examples, and you've worked around the world on this stuff, are there specific examples of other cities around the world that have addressed climate resilience in a meaningful way that stands out to you? You know, what are the big lessons that Canada, if it is behind, can learn from them? I'll give you both the global examples, but also highlight maybe some of the Canadian ones that I touched on earlier. When you look at Holland, they have a fundamentally different approach to dealing with water. And the concept is to live with water, that we're not going to keep water out through seawalls or canals. We have to accept that water is going to come in. And in Toronto, with the Portland's flood protection project, we've applied that concept here. So the Don River used to flow north-south and then had a sort of engineered 90-degree turn. That's not how water works. It doesn't turn on 90 degrees. And there's a giant project underway, joint project between the city of Toronto, province of Ontario, and the government of Canada to re-naturalize that river. The result will be the flooding of some land in the Portlands and the creation of a new island called Billiards Island. That kind of project, which obviously takes climate change into account, but is also about community, is about equity, is thinking not just about climate resilience, but also having a climate positive, net zero, Villiers Island, thinking about transportation, our interaction with the natural habitat. That holistic thinking, to me, is a great example of a resilient project. You know, you said a lot of grim things here. 
when people like me come around to interview you about like, oh God, everything's bad. Uh, and in a lot of ways, there are a lot of things that needed to happen yesterday that haven't happened yet. What is the thing that you look to, to say, there is hope still, we got this? So I'm not that old, but even in the you know 15 years that I've been working in this space, and even in the last three years, frankly, since I left the city of Toronto, we've seen such a huge change. Things are clearly moving in the right direction. I don't think you even need to look back 15 years. I think if you even look back 18 months or even to just before the pandemic or just after I left the city of Toronto, there is such a huge change, right, in the way that we're thinking about and acting on climate change. And it's not just linear. It's like it's just going up exponentially. And so where we are now is inadequate, um, frustrating, and we need to be doing more. But when I look back at just where we were 18 months ago, the conversation has totally changed. And the amount of money behind things has totally changed. I work with clients from across every sector, public companies, private companies, investors, governments. There's nobody who says this isn't real. There's nobody who says we're not moving forward with this. We think we can kind of push it off a few more months. And even in the last six months, you know, the conversations that I have with municipalities or, or with other governments, I mean, the people on the other side of the table are just so much smarter on the topic and are skilling up so quickly that the, the, the pace of change, like I said, it's not linear, it's exponential. And so the hope that I have is that if I look back 18 months ago, even just 18 months ago, despite COVID, how much progress we've changed, I think, well, maybe by 2030, we're going to be somewhere that, you know, I'm not doom and gloom as I was in, in a number of my statements today. On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at food. Not only at what's on the horizon when it comes to the future of food and how we get it into our cities, but also for this other important piece of the city puzzle. What's the future of restaurants? There are a lot of issues on the plates of our food providers, so get ready to dig in. City Space is produced by Julia Delorentis Johnston. It's written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Thaddeus Palowski and Elliot Capel, for lending us their time to record this show remotely. And if you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your favorite city dweller about city space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.